nothing for tomorrow which can be done today. Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Give me six hours to chop down a tree, and I will spend the first four sharpening the axe. The best way to predict your future is to create it. Hello, everyone, and it's that time again. Welcome to the Sydney St. James Show. We sure appreciate you dropping in. Bam! The other shot heard all around the world. The Civil War in America had just ended and all the major newspapers around the North and the South began printing their stories. However, when the dust cleared enough to see, John Wilkes Booth was designated the Fall Guy. Hello everyone, Sydney St. James here with my podcast on how and why I wrote the Abraham Lincoln assassination series several years ago. Some of you have learned that I've got this niche of being able to go back in this fancy time machine of mine, in virtual time that is, and put myself in other people's shoes. I did this many times in my genealogy studies and did this when I wrote the five book series on Lincoln's assassination. It was the evening of April 14, 1865, according to the northern newspapers, and the war between the states had ended and Washington City was celebrating. President Abraham Lincoln entered the balcony at Ford's Theater to a standing ovation, a symbol of return to every day of life. The following morning, the president was dead. And assassin John Wilkes Booth became one of the, if not the most infamous figure in all of U.S. history. But now, 157 years since a one shot from a Derringer pistol, conspiracy theories still abound in America. I suppose you can say it was one of the most egregious fake news cover-ups in all of American history. What if I were to tell you that John Wilkes Booth did not fire the gun that killed President Lincoln? What if I was to say to you he actually died in Oklahoma many, many years later? Or what if I tell you the Secretary of War was secretly in on the plot to kill the president. And what if I were to tell you that the Catholic Church was knee deep in all of it from the start? 
All these questions come from writing from the actual court transcripts and autopsy reports and other items of interest in a five-book series, the Lincoln Assassination Series. Since going to college in my early days, I've been a historian, still a historian. I love history, either from the Bible or our own American history. Although I majored in history at A&M for a few semesters, I graduated without a degree in that field. But I still remain very interested in the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. My five book series, which would have been six books, began at President Lincoln's bedside when he passed away on April 15, 1865 at 7.22 in the morning. I know you might go out and find that there's not a sixth novel, of course, and this is because I elected not to write the one on conspiracy theories. However, I will say there's much, much evidence in all the digital archives that will make you think twice that there was more than only one man pulling the trigger on a single shot during your pistol. In my review of the piles of digital archives when investigating the president's death and going over eyewitness reports to write the original five novels, there are actually pieces of this evidence that Goin reveals a secret shooter and a cover-up that stretches all the way from Washington, D.C. to the Catholic Church in Rome. So, thank you for joining me today as I discuss briefly the many areas that don't make sense. There's still so much more to my story. something. Does it make any logic for an actor who I compare in my deductions to Elvis Presley in 1957 acting alone to come to assassinate President Lincoln with a single shot Derringer? Why not a pistol that holds six bullets instead of one just in case the first one missed? Why not at least two guns? And the pistol, of course, that he used, John Wilkes Booth, only had one bullet. An hour after Lincoln arrived at the Ford's Theater, the play hit its climax. Bam! A gunshot rang out through the building. The entire theater began ransacking the president's box, looking for a small piece of history. However, the gun used to kill Lincoln was not discovered until a few hours afterward. It was definitely a trampled crime scene, so to speak. 
everybody was on their hands and knees looking all around for mementos. And nobody could find the murder weapon, no matter where they looked. The Derringer pistol was finally found, however, by a man looking for his missing keys after helping move Lincoln's wounded body across the street. Instead of turning the gun over to the authorities, the man gave it to a reporter. Could John Wilkes Booth have been the fall person in a much larger plot hatched by a secret Southern society called the Knights of the Golden Circle? Was it a total cover-up by the Catholic Church? Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, or even Andrew Johnson, now the President of the United States? Was it simply an act of war that have, should never have been punished in the very first place? Now, let's highlight what many of you listening to today will say, I didn't know that. But the theories all can stand on their own two legs if you really think about it. Now, one of the first theories, now you have to understand, when writing a novel, there are more hours per chapter put in to doing research than that of actually writing the novel. And I can't, in this podcast, give you all the footnotes to where I found this or where I found that, but I can tell you, from as much research as I did, and the witnesses that I listened to, and the transcripts that I read, that the theories are based on facts, and just listen to what I think and take it as a grain of salt if you wish. There's a book, and it's entitled The Escape and Suicide of John Wilkes Booth. And it was written by a Memphis lawyer. His name was Finnis Bates, and it was published in 1907. I read that book, and it sold 70,000 copies. And Bates claimed to know a Texas bartender who was named John St. Helen, who in 1877 suffered an asthma attack. He thought he was dying and he confessed to Finnis Bates he was, in fact, really John Wilkes Booth. According to Bates in his novel, John St. Helen recovered from his illness and spilled the entire incredible story several weeks later. Just how he had come up with the plot with the secretly pro-Confederate Andrew Johnson to kidnap Abe Lincoln and ransom him for Confederate prisoners of war. How that plan suddenly fell through when General Robert E. Lee surrendered in April of 1865. How Andrew Johnson convinced him to kill Lincoln assured him that his getaway would be prearranged and sealed the deal with a cold and clammy handshake. He also told of how on the night of April 14th, he escaped over the Navy Yard Bridge. He gave the sentries a prearranged password, and the words were TB Road, and was later escorted across the Potomac River 
to the state of Virginia by a mercenary farmer. Finally, how the farmer was killed in a barn and mistakenly identified as Booth, while the actual John Wilkes Booth galloped away towards safety in West Virginia and on down south to Texas. Bates and John St. Helen parted ways after this confession, and afterward, Bates spent a good part of the next 45 years trying to prove that St. Helen really was John Wilkes Booth. In 1898, he started to pester the War Department with claims to the $50,000 reward offered in 1865 for any information leading to the capture of Booth. Finally, in 1903, a painting contractor named David George poisoned himself to death in a small town known as Enid, Oklahoma. It was in a hotel room. He said that he was, in fact, John Wilkes Booth with his dying breath. Phoenix Bates got on a train to Enid, Oklahoma presented himself at the undertakers and triumphantly identified the corpse as John St. Helen after 25 years since seeing his old friend. Later, Finnis Bates had the body mummified and shipped it back to his barn in Memphis, Tennessee to use as evidence. Bates claims that certain marks on the body, such as a fencing scar above the right eyebrow, and a deformed right thumb proved that it was John Wilkes Booth. Phoenix Bates died 20 years later and his wife sold the awful looking mummy to a doctor. It then found its way to a traveling circus. From all evidence, the next theory. According to the popularity, accepted version, the body from the born was taken to the USS Montauk, autopsied, and then buried beneath the Washington Arsenal. Not having the space in this podcast, it should be noted the actual autopsy had questionable narratives written that make one think twice that this just might not be the body of John Wilkes Booth. However, to calm down the public eye, and as you can imagine, they were all in an uproar. It was agreed that the killer was caught and the body was buried. Four years later, the Booth family was prosperous and petitioned to exhume the corpse and rebury it in Baltimore. Many researchers say this was the wrong corpse and based their claims on several pieces of evidence. Two eyewitnesses, a soldier and a secret service man who identified the man killed in the, in the Garrett barn had red hair. Well, we all know that Booth had glossy black hair. A doctor who once treated Booth examined the corpse and noted that the body was freckled and the right leg, not the left leg, was broken. There was a man in 1877 who called himself John St. Helen, near death on his sickbed, confessed to his lawyer in Granbury, Texas, 
that he was, in fact, John Wilkes Booth, and that the soldiers that day at the barn had killed a man by the name of Ruddy, who, for undisclosed reasons, carried Booth's diary buried deep in his pocket. Hmm, more fuel for thought, right? Now, was President Andrew Johnson in on Lincoln's assassination? Approximately six or seven hours before shooting the president, Booth dropped by the Washington Hotel. And this is where Vice President Andrew Johnson kept his residence. Upon learning from the clerk at the front desk that neither Johnson nor his private secretary, William Browning, was in the hotel, John Wilkes Booth took a piece of paper from his coat pocket and wrote a note. And it said, Don't wish to disturb you, sir. Are you at home? J. Wilkes Booth. William Browning testified to the military court. He found the note in his inbox later that afternoon. Did Vice President Johnson and Booth know each other? Hmm. Well, in the 1997 booklet, it's called Right or Wrong, God Judge Me, The Writings of John Wilk Booth. On page 146, Booth previously met Johnson in Nashville in February of 1864. At the time, Booth appeared in the grand opening of Woods Theater. Also, author Hamilton Howard wrote a book. It's called The Civil War Echoes, published in 1907. And he claimed that while Johnson was military governor of Tennessee, Booth and he kept a couple of sisters as mistresses and often were seen in the company of each other. Lincoln essentially ignored Johnson after his embarrassing behavior on Inauguration Day. However, Mary Todd Lincoln felt Johnson was so involved, and on March 15, 1866, she wrote a letter to her good friend Sally Orne. In it, it says, that miserable inebriate Johnson had cognizance of my husband's death. Why? Why was that note on Booth's found in his inbox? Some acquaintance certainly existed, I know it. I've been deeply impressed with the awful thought that he had an understanding with the conspirators and they knew their man. As sure as you and I live, my friend, Andrew Johnson definitely had something to do with all of this. Some members of Congress thought Johnson was involved big time, and a special assassination committee was established to investigate the evidence linking Andrew Johnson to Abe Lincoln's death. The committee never found anything unusual, yet some Americans believed Johnson was somehow involved with Booth continued for many years. Now the big one, was the Catholic Church behind the actual assassination of Abraham Lincoln? In 1886, a priest named Charles Chinagai wrote a book called 50 Years in the Church of Rome. 
It portrays the assassination of Abraham Lincoln as a Catholic grand conspiracy. Chinagai maintains Jefferson Davis had offered $1 million if someone would kill the author of the bloodshed. Chinagai wrote that the money could be provided, but it was the Jesuits by themselves who could pick the assassins. They could train them and show them a great crown of glory in heaven. John Wilkes Booth was the tool of the Jesuits. He was corrupted and supposedly directed by the Vatican itself. In the year 1906, Chinagai said, the president, Abraham Lincoln, was killed by the priest and the Jesuits of Rome. In the year of 1856, Lincoln defended Chinagai in court. And then Chinagai quarreled with his bishop and was sued for slander by one of the bishop's friends. A morals charge was involved. And then the case was heard in May of 1856 in Urbana, Illinois. Lincoln arranged for a settlement, but Chinagai interpreted the settlement as a victory over the church. He felt that some Jesuits held Lincoln responsible for that settlement. Then, in 1897, Thomas M. Harris, a member of the 1865 Military Commission, wrote a book entitled with the title of Rome's Responsibility for the Assassination of Abraham Lincoln. There are many other books that strongly point at Rome and the Vatican's responsibility for Lincoln's death. In all the bloody history in the past for the papacy, perhaps in no one particular man, as in Abe Lincoln, was there concentrated such a ton of reasons for his assassination by the system. From all that I researched when writing this five-book series, most American Catholics favored slavery, and they also opposed Lincoln in the 1860s. The totalitarian papacy considered Lincoln a significant enemy, and that the church for centuries had been associated in numerous instances with the forcible removal of heads of state whom it condemned. Enough said. Now, for another fact. Was the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, involved in the murder of Abraham Lincoln? I wrote my novel based on the facts and one could easily see something fishy with the diary that was taken off of the man killed in the barn. It's like a lot of research and a lot of study in mystery books that I write. If you follow the money, you can find clues to who's guilty and who's not. Well, I did just that. And out of all the theories from my research I uncovered, this one, that Secretary Ward Edwin Stanton was most definitely directly involved in Lincoln's death, is right up there as being a real possibility. 
Stanton was against Lincoln's calm reconstruction policies and wanted him out of the office so a more radical reconstructionist policy could be employed. On the assassination day, Ulysses S. Grant, now get this, because the war is over now, right, was expected to attend as a part of the celebration process our American cousin, the play that was playing at Ford's Theater with the Lincolns. The military guards who protected him, if Grant had attended, would have never allowed Booth to enter the state box at Ford's Theater. In reading the public record material, Grant's refusal of the Lincoln's Theater invitation was due to an order given by Edwin Stanton to change his plans for that one evening. Now, I can't prove of any of this that I'm talking about. This is all theory. That's why it's called a conspiracy theory. But, however, my theory is this, that Grant's absence left Lincoln completely, now get this, completely unprotected. Stanton was also alleged to have known conspirators were meeting at Mary Surratt's boarding house, and that he refused to release from duty Major Thomas Eckert after Lincoln specifically asked for him as a bodyguard. Stanton falsely stated that Eckert had vital work to attend to at the War Department's telegraph office. Oh, with the war not officially over, this to me is very surprising that Stanton took off any protection for the president that one particular night. Furthermore, I would like to make my case against Stanton by examining a series of events that followed John Wilkes Booth's single shot from his derringer. Nearly every move Stanton made can be seen as suspicious and each move contained an ulterior motive. Among these was that they did not alert the security at the one particular Navy Yard Bridge, just one, over which Booth and Davy Harrell escaped. The mysterious interruption of the telegraph communications, secretly arranging to have J. Wilkes Booth killed before being brought to trial, and the suppression of evidence by removing pages from Booth's diary which I think is a very fact for consideration of some kind of conspiracy. In Theodore Roscoe's book, The Web of Conspiracy, which was written in 1959, he also found Stanton's behavior very suspect. Other high government officials were also implicated. Ray Neff discovered further evidence against Stanton who located cipher messages supposedly written in 1868 by Lafayette Baker, director of the National Detective Police, that implicated himself, the Secretary of War, and many others, including several congressmen. In hindsight, however, behavior by Stanton, which appeared to be linked to a conspiracy, was shown to be innocent and in some cases, even fabricated by historical scholars. And then, 
The last theory I wish to discuss is portrayed in the memoirs of a member of the Knights of the Golden Circle. This was probably one of the most secretive societies ever formed in all of history. Mannerisms, such as when handshaking, the use of one finger laid across the other's wrist versus two fingers spread across the wrist meant two different things. They were a powerful organization, put many plots into action, and succeeded in doing so. So what do you think? Was it a Confederate plot from the very beginning to kill all the heads of state of the North? The idea Lincoln was killed as part of a grand conspiracy of Confederates arose immediately after the assassination. There were coded letters found in Booth's trunk back in the National Hotel that tied him to the Confederacy. In 1977, a confession conspirator, George Azeroth, made only moments before the trial in 1865, was located 100 years after the fact. In it, Azeroth gave information about Booth's knowledge of a Confederate plan to blow up the White House. The hypothesis of a Confederate grand conspiracy was described in 1988 by Tidwell, Hall, and Gaddy in their book called The Confederate Secret Service and the Assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Advocates of the Confederate grand conspiracy point out that more daring and reckless planning was needed as the Confederacy situation continued to deteriorate. As a result, Abraham Lincoln was viewed as a legitimate at-war target. This was especially true after the Union failed in their attempt with Colonel Dahlgren's raid on Richmond, Virginia, which was approved by Lincoln himself, and there was evidence of Lincoln's increasing determination to take whatever steps necessary to end the war. Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren was killed on that raid, and on his person several pages of secret documents were located, one of which said the men must be kept together. Once in the city, it must be burned down and destroyed, and Jeff Davis and his entire cabinet killed. Lincoln supposedly now hand-picked Dahlgren for the raid, and the Confederate government now believe the North's president had ordered Jeff Davis's death and the entire cabinet. Hmm. Now, now it was their turn to return the favor, so to speak. The South's grand conspiracy theorists felt Judah Benjamin, the Confederate Secretary of State, was deeply involved in the plot to kidnap first and then kill Abraham Lincoln. This was after the failed attempt to kill his own president, Jefferson Davis. It's kind of like Hillary Clinton and the disappearance on her email service of thousands upon thousands of emails. Secretary Benjamin burned all of his records only moments before Richmond was evacuated. Benjamin then escaped to England and 
bigger than life itself, he was the only member of the Confederate government never to return to the United States of America. He practiced law in England until 1883 when he became ill, became bedridden. He died in Paris on May 6th, 1884. A Confederate far-reaching conspiracy theory portrays Booth as a rebel agent working to organize a group of men to kidnap Lincoln. When Richmond failed, the plan did an about-face and turned to assassination. First, the failed effort to blow up the White House was followed by the successful attempt to kill Lincoln at the Ford Theater. It's funny how so many historical records that we hold dear to our hearts were written by the victors. The voice of the South, for the most part, has been kept out of the history textbooks that we read in high school and college. Let's put the shoe on the other foot for just one moment before the plan to kill Lincoln went into effect. Behind closed doors, President Lincoln or Secretary of War Edwin Stanton may have ordered the killing of Jefferson Davis and his cabinet by the Union Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren and his men. However, it was unsuccessful and Dahlgren lost his life in that attempt. That, my friends, are facts. Now, Judah Benjamin and Jefferson Davis were involved in a plan to kidnap and later assassinate Abraham Lincoln. The theory of Confederate complicity in the killing of Abraham Lincoln is accepted by several of the current Lincoln assassination historians and some scholars and some researchers. However, the actual trigger for Booth's actions was the April 10th capture of explosive expert Thomas Harney, who was traveling to Washington, D.C. to bomb the White House. Knowing that Harney's mission had failed, Booth tried to make up for Harney's disaster by taking matters into his own hands and assassinating the president at Ford's Theater. In 2003, the Surratt Society published a booklet written about the Lincoln assassination written by James Hall and others. The article shows that John Wilkes Booth was not a wealthy man and was offered a large amount of money by the Confederates and the Knights of the Golden Circle to capture Lincoln and bring him to Richmond. The article is entitled, To Make a Fortune. Confederate plans to blow up the White House were discussed earlier and appear to be confirmed as well by George Azeroth's letter of confession. I decided that I would not write the sixth novel and let the readers themselves determine from each book written in my Lincoln assassination series with as many truthful facts as possible incorporated in the creative historical nonfiction writing. Before I discuss the books available and conclude my podcast for today, I need to take a quick break and hear a few words about my sponsor. Helps me keep the lights on around this place. And after that, we'll be right back with the rest of my story 
and the books that composed the five-book series on the Lincoln assassination. Well, we're back for the rest of my story. Book one in my series is called The Lost Cause. The assassination of Abraham Lincoln on April 14, 1865, and his death at 7.22 a.m. on April 15th are covered in this first novel. His funeral train back home is narrated along with the ending punishment phase of the conspirators. Much of the life of Jefferson Davis is brought to life as well, including how the United States didn't fly a flag at half-mast honoring him. He was the only former Secretary of War not given the respect in the history of the United States. In Book 2, The Pursuit and Capture of John Wilkes Booth, General Robert E. Lee said, There's a terrible war coming. These young men who have never seen war can't wait for it to happen. But I tell you, I wish that I owned every slave in the South, for I would free every single one of them to avoid this awful, awful war. This novel will follow John Wilkes Booth and the Federal Force's extensive manhunt to capture him. Still, there are questions. For example, the memoirs of one of the soldiers who captured the assassin said, the man they killed had a red mustache. Booth's, of course, was black. Oh, and yes, the papers from the autopsy report have multiple conflicting findings, most of which were covered up by Edwin Stanton. They simply wanted to say they got their man. In book three, Lewis Thornton Powell, The Conspiracy to Kill Abraham Lincoln. Winston Churchill once said, history is written by the victors. From all indications, enough preliminary witnesses placed Lewis Thornton Powell in the same room with Secretary of State Seward. This alone proved he was involved. William Doster took over representation for the defense of Powell. Doster was a graduate of Yale and Harvard and a former provost marshal for the District of Columbia. In book four, Knights of the Golden Circle, a most secretive organization. This book is more of a reference manual for writing the other four novels in the series. For example, you can't understand the Lincoln assassination without an understanding of the Knights of the Golden Circle, the most powerful and the most secretive society in all of America at the time of the Civil War. The organization grew out of Southern rights clubs in the South, which were primarily interested in opening up more territory to slavery. The actual words written in this reference novel were written by an order member who never revealed his name. And in my last book of the series, book five, called Mary Elizabeth Surratt, first woman executed by the federal government. The entire court case for Mary Elizabeth Surratt 
is depicted in this novel, the fifth novel in the Lincoln Assassination series. The reader can follow the trial and determine for themselves from the evidence and the testimony of the witnesses if she should have been found guilty or innocent. Rather than a civilian court, a military tribunal was chosen as the prosecutorial venue. Why? President Andrew Johnson didn't declare an end to the war between the states until August of 1866. Does that mean that Lincoln's assassination was an act of war? Was Mary Elizabeth Srot in the wrong place at the wrong time? Was the United States government out for revenge, out for blood? But I suggest you read the story and make up your own mind based on the actual transcripts. President Andrew Johnson said, Mary Elizabeth Surratt kept the nest that hatched the egg. Was this enough evidence to hang someone? On the contrary, this quote suggests that Johnson was bolstering his belief that she was guilty and deserved the harshest sentence allowed. Mary Elizabeth Surratt is an exciting conclusion to this file, five novel series on the Lincoln assassination. And coming to a close today and closing this podcast, I must add that hundreds upon hundreds of hours went into the research of writing the five novels. Also, another hundred went into the facts that just don't match up for putting all the pieces together of the puzzle. There are so, so many unknowns. As I usually do, I whirl myself back to that time and imagine what I would do with whatever tools of the trade I had or didn't have. What is a conspiracy theory? It's an explanation for an event or situation that invokes a conspiracy by sinister and influential groups, often political in motivation, such in my case in this broadcast was the Knights of the Golden Circle and others. The term, however, has a negative connotation, implying that the appeal to a conspiracy is based on prejudice or insufficient evidence. A conspiracy theory isn't the same thing as the simple word conspiracy. It refers to a hypothesized conspiracy with specific characteristics, such as an opposition to the mainstream consensus among people, such as myself, who have looked over stacks and stacks of documents from the Civil War period to evaluate its accuracy. Well, I hope you've enjoyed some fuel for thought in my podcast today. If you wish to learn more, the five book series is available through any bookstores worldwide or online. Before, before I depart this podcast, however, I'd like to ask you to either take the surveys that you see associated with it or Leave a voicemail message by clicking on the blue voicemail tab at the beginning or leave a review or share this pod page with someone else that you think might be interested. And 
As always, I really would like to thank you for stopping by today. I love all my listeners out there and all those across the pond and the more that are joining. So until next time, see you later, alligator. Well, that does it for another episode on the Sydney St. James Show. I want to thank everyone for listening and everyone for dropping by today. Also, I'd like to ask you, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click the follow button. Leave a short review with maybe, hmm, kind words. And tell your friends about the Sydney St. James Show and share the, share the show with anyone that you think might like the show. The more, the merrier. And maybe by the end of this year, our goal is to have 100,000 listeners for the Sydney St. James Show. And I want you part of that listening group. Until the next great episode from the Sydney St. James Show, again, thank you very much from me, Sydney St. James. <laughs> <laughs>